Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. Homelessness has reached crisis proportions. Few issues of human dignity are as heart-wrenching as the wretched scenes of our most prosperous cities, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, and Seattle, where one can drive down main thoroughfares and be confronted with miles of tent encampments lining streets that provide scant shelter for thousands of destitute people. The crisis is as multifaceted as it is seemingly intractable. What is the role of mental illness? What about drug addiction? Is the rising cost of housing part of the problem, and if so, what can be done about it? What protections does society owe these vulnerable people based simply on their humanity? And what responsibilities, if any, do they owe to greater society? It's all such a mess. It is tempting to throw up one's hands in despair. Thankfully, there are people willing to tackle the seemingly hopeless cause. My Discovery Institute colleague, Robert Marbot, Jr., is one such man. Marbot is a renowned expert on homelessness and a senior fellow with the Discovery Institute Center on Wealth and Poverty. He has a PhD in political behavior and American political institutions, and his career has been marked by bipartisanship, having served as chief of staff for San Antonio Mayor Henry Cisneros in the 1980s, as a White House fellow under George H.W. Bush, and most recently as the executive director of the United States Interagency Council on Homelessness from 2019 to 2021 under both the Trump and Biden administrations. Additionally, he served on the board of directors of the United States Olympic Committee from 1992 to 2004. Marbot is a currently tenured professor of government at Northwest Vista College in San Antonio, Texas. Bob, welcome to Humanize. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth and Poverty is a relatively new program. What are its purposes and goals? To, to really, it was almost your intro there, to take on those uh, issues that are often in people think are not solvable or not addressable or you can't make significant improvement. And to and, and in my opinion, I, I'm sort of going to jump to the punchline here while also answering that is sometimes what government does is actually make things worse. And so we want to look at things in a, in a fresh sheet of paper, start from scratch, find out good ways that really work. And most importantly, we have to stop doing some of the crazy stuff we do that actually increases, in, in our case, homelessness, which is the lane I work in. 
What made you decide to devote yourself to helping people who are homeless? Well, it it wasn't a very, it was, I don't want to say it's accidental, but there was a, a horrific situation that happened at our church when I was in high school. I was just a member of a youth group, just happily, you know, go Sunday afternoon, go to the gym and have a youth group and get a meal and such. And on one particular day, a person had died the night before on the doorsteps of our church and the church door was locked and the pastor came out and made a sermon that basically said, I had a great all happy sermon I was going to do, and we're not doing that. We are scratching everything, and we're going to open up an overnight winter shelter tonight, and we can't have people dying in downtown San Antonio anymore. And so Reverend Zabinden uh, got that started. So I started out as a volunteer first in high school. Then when I went away for college, came back, did some volunteer work. It, it ultimately became a, a major ministry here that sort of split off and it became interdenominational. So I did it volunteering for about 25 years. And then one day I came back uh, from working at the White House and, and, and when I was struck by everybody I'd seen when I was in high school, college, my early career, my mid-career, I kept seeing the same people on the street. And every so often I would get, you know, have a good friendship with somebody and I asked, well, where's, you know, whatever the street name is, country, mountain, different names. And it, the only time people ever left is that sadly if they died. And it, it just struck me, we had the craziest thing going on on homelessness. Once you entered homelessness, your only exit was death on the street. Well, and that's there was a, that's no a, real program. That's a treatment. real indictment. That's a real indictment for a, a, a society and country as rich as this one. Oh, and, and I firmly believe you judge your society by how you treat your, your you know, least, last, and lost. And I, I really believe that. And if we are mistreating people that we actually make a bad situation worse because of our policy. We need to change our policy. Yeah. Um, I'm woefully ignorant of the causes uh, and potential cures for this crisis. So please forgive me if I use the wrong terminology or ask seemingly elementary questions, but it strikes me that homelessness is a pretty generic term. How do we define exactly who it is that we're talking about? God, that's a great question, and we could spend five hours in a graduate seminar course on that. But to, to keep it real short, there are two governmental definitions. There's one that's done by the Housing and Urban Development HUD definition. That often is includes the street homeless and the adult singles. Then there's the Department of Education definition, which is really focused more on children's and families under 18. And that's sometimes called the McKinney-Vento. So there, there are two, even the U.S. government has two definitions. <laughs> believe it or not, that's an improvement. Pre-2010, there was about seven or eight different definitions. So I, 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 it is very wide. It's very, it, it, it includes a lot of things. But I think it's somebody who doesn't have a house to stay in that they either own, rent, or lease. I think it's probably the simplest way to put it, you can, uh, they, one of the federal definitions is about 23 pages long. And, and <laughs> why so am I, I not surprised? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think it's, and it, and I think you have to, when you start addressing homelessness, you have to work on 
if you really want real reductions, you also have to work in prevention and intervention. So the people that sort of 72 hours before you start really experiencing homelessness, before you get kicked out of your apartment, I, I sort of started about 72 hours. You, you could back it up as far as you want, but at least 72 hours before, there's still a chance to keep you in that apartment. So that's sort of where my marker starts all the way to how do we get you to graduate and create an environment where you graduate out of homelessness. I, I saw one statistic that found there are 500,000 people who are homeless on any given night. That's an astonishing figure. Is it accurate? No. It's actually very, very low. And, oh, dear. And, and that is the it, going to the HUD definition. They, they have five definitions, su- sort of subcategories in the HUD definition. That 500,000 is only looking at two of their five subgroups. If you add all five of the HUD subgroups together, so it, it would be the unsheltered, sheltered, rapid rehousing, permanent supportive housing. And if you take all of those groups together, you end up in a situation where you're about 1.2 million on any given night for the HUD definition. On the Department of Ed Education, there's another 1.5 million uh, in the Department of Ed. So if you take the two groups together, it's about 2.7 million people. It, it strikes me that that's got to be the worst record of any non-developing country, uh, certainly any Western country. Absolutely. And there are a variety of reasons for that, but you're absolutely right. And and when you start putting both groups together, you start approaching about 1% of your overall society. We're not quite at that number in, in most communities. It's about point. but that number, the problem is the number's rising. That's what disturbs me the most is whether it's the McKinney-Vento or the HUD definition, these numbers are rising, they're not going down. If they were going down, then your your issue is how how much longer will it take to get it down to a very, you know, a close to zero number uh, or how do we try to limit... because my concern is if you continue to rise, the ricocheting effect through the community is amazing. It, 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 it's, it's horrible for the individual ex- person experiencing homelessness. It's horrible for their family. I think a lot of people forget to think about the families that, that it, if you talk to any family has somebody experiencing homelessness in a family, they talk about how it drives almost everything that the family is doing. And then you have emergency room visits that are clogging up ERs. You have the jails and prisons that are, are, are filled. You have most police departments I'm running into, about a third of their regular daily calls are on people experiencing homelessness. And then you got, you know, the, the community issues, the nimbyism, the fear issues, the economic development issues. So it, 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 this one single issue really ripples through our society in so many detrimental ways. Before we move on, I just want to make it clear in my mind, we're talking about people who do not have homes, but that are not necessarily an each night living on the streets. They might be in a shelter, they might be in temporary housing, but they don't have the security of a home. Is that basically it? Correct. And, and there's about a quarter million people 
that are literally with not even that. They, they have no root, what you would almost call street level unsheltered homelessness. And so you have about a quarter million people in, in largely located, that group is largely located in four or five cities on the West Coast. Those are the with, people with, living in tents? In living in tents, living on the street, living in a bridge, living in a beach, a park, and such. So you have about a quarter million in that unsheltered group. And then you got another about 900,000 in some form of housing that is subsidized that without without either a nonprofit group or a governmental group or a faith-based group would not have a roof over their head. And that's about 900,000 people. As I researched this issue, there seem to be two contrasting approaches to helping people who are homeless. One is housing first, and the other is treatment and recovery. Please describe each of these as objectively as you can, and then let's get into the way you think the best approach would be in terms of, of those questions. It, and I would like to add a third one uh, as right. we go through that. Please so, do. Uh, let's take the, maybe not the most productive, but the simplest one is do nothing. Uh, huh. there, there are many communities in the United States that for either political reasons or they can't get the, the nimbyism worked out or what have you, who literally do nothing. And there's a, a lot of reasons why that happens. But I see that. I, I actually think that's probably the most prevalent form is where the government, uh, the local government just does nothing. So that's number one. And, then and, there's, and, and that doesn't mean that there aren't services for those people, but it would be exclusively through the private sector and through philanthropy. Correct. And, and it's probably unorganized. It's probably one off. It's probably one facility for 300 people, even though you might have 2000 people experiencing homelessness. So it, it's a definitely underserved, probably under coordinated. So that would be the do nothing approach. Then there's the approach of treatment and recovery uh, housing that heals uh, people that focus on getting you out of homelessness. And that is the idea that this is a thera- you need a therapeutic treatment approach, uh, often called trauma-informed care, where if you think about the, the root cause for about 80% of the people experiencing homeless is the mental health, behavioral health, and then there's a, a group within that group who's self-medicating, who's now become addicted to a substance. So they have the mental health, behavioral health, and they have the substance use disease disorder, may, confounding, making everything much worse. And so if so you we have, we have, we have people on the street who are mentally, to use my vernacular, and per, as again, I might not be using the per, correct uh, lexicon, but people who are mentally ill, People who are addicted to drugs, would they be the uh, and uh, the overwhelming majority of people uh, who have homelessness, other than perhaps children? Spot on, spot on. On the HUD definition, that's about eighty percent. Mental health, behavioral health being the by far the number one. Uh, people who enter homelessness because of pure substance use disease. It happens, but it's a very small group. That, that group is very, very small. It's the co-presenting that get on the street and become, uh, you know, addicted to a sub, whether it's a substance use disease or disorder, depending on what part of the country you're in. That, comp- that makes everything worse. It takes the mental health because you're not treating the mental health or behavioral health issue properly with the illness 
then the substance act comes in quick and fast, and then it makes everything worse. So if you know 80% of the people are in that those two categories, and that's absolute metaphysical certainty on the HUD definition, that people are in those two categories, why would we not focus on mental health, behavioral health treatment, and substance use disorders and disease? If you don't focus on those, you're never going to solve this problem. If you just give people free, and this is going to go to that third definition, which is the housing first approach. It basically says, we're not going to treat this. We're not going to require any treatment protocols. We're not going to try We're not going to try to put you into treatment. We're just going to give you a roof. We're going to give you free gas or a gas card or a Metro card, depending on where you are. We're going to bring in free food. We're going to bring in free furniture, and we're going to give you all this and you don't have to do any treatment and recovery whatsoever. In fact, in some states, they make it where the service provider is not allowed to do those. In some states, they're allowed to do it, but they're not allowed to have any entry requirements or behavioral or treatment requirements. This would be the, the think about some other federal funding. So let's take a step back. Think about a Pell Grant. This would be the equivalent of giving anybody a Pell Grant, a $5,000 grant for graduate school or undergraduate school, and say, whether you go to school doesn't matter, whether you get a GPA doesn't matter, whether you finish. We don't do that. For a Pell Grant, we require uh, we have an attendance requirement, we have a GPA requirement, and we have a time limit requirement. Same with TANF, same with unemployment insurance. Most states, you have to, every 10 days, Look for X amount of interviews. You have to go to job training classes and such. So in most parts, and ironically, most of these reforms came from the Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich uh, deal in the late or mid-90s, and that's still around. And so in most of the welfare programs or, or whatever you would like to get low income, whatever you'd like to call it, the broadest sense, most of these programs have some sort of requirements built in. And what we've now come to know Housing First as in, in the functional way, it is A, no, no accountability at all, no treatment focus at all. There's no, there's no, we don't even measure the right things. Yet. What do the advocates who, which seems to me, and perhaps I'm old fashioned, but this seems to me like to be enabling behavior. I mean, enabling situation where you, you just will, will basically almost reward you for acting in a dysfunctional way, what do the housing first uh, people say is the reason for no responsibility on the part of the people receiving the benefits? Well, first off, you're right on. It is enabling, and it truly is enabling in in most cases when you do that. And what what has happened on this issue in the last 15 years? Interesting, we had homelessness dropping. In the Bush years, when it was a focus on treatment and recovery, and so it was in 2013 when the federal government officially shifted its policy. And to be honest, more and more I meet with people on the other side, and I've met with everybody who's ever wanted to meet with me when I was in the White House, when I was doing the uh, the homelessness art. I met with anybody who ever wanted to meet with me, and I've met with people all across the country. And more and more, what I'm sensing is it, it, it's people on the other side of the housing first argument. What they are arguing is this is a civil right, civil liberty. And so they're making it 
into a like a, a freedom issue or a civil right liberty. I look at this as purely a medical, clinical, therapeutic issue that we need. If you don't put in the therapeutics, if we don't address the mental health, if we don't address the substance use disorder, we're never going to get there. This number is just going to keep increasing, increasing. And if you make this a civil rights issue with no treatment, no recovery, all, that's a formula of disaster that we're going to grow this number over and over. Just look at Seattle, look at Portland, look at San Francisco, look at LA, look and it at seems Honolulu. To me, yeah, it seems to me it's tied in with the um, uh, uh, broken windows concept that uh, former Mayor Rudy Giuliani brought to New York. That is, if you allow graffiti, if you allow broken windows, if you allow public elimination, that that uh, destroys the value of an area and pretty soon your crime rates go up. And it also strikes me that this is part of a problem that I think is much larger than the issue that we're talking about is that there are a lot of people in this country who, who, underst- who, who look at things as only about rights and not about responsibilities. So what you're saying is that the approach you you would take, which is the treatment and recovery approach, am I correct? Correct. That uh, that yes, of course, out of love and out of compassion and out of care for these people, we want to give them help to help them get themselves on their own feet. But they have a responsibility to participate in that. Absolutely, and it's the responsibility of the public policy to create the environment of recovery. And if you say. You can go do whatever you want in your building, and we're going to give you free everything. And you can go shoot up. You can go run a brothel. uh, You can run a meth lab. uh, You can continue to drink till till you don't know what you're doing. I personally don't think that's dignifying. I don't think that's respectful. I don't think that's love. I think love and respect is helping you to help. We, and we won't do it for anybody. I think that's also very important to understand. We have to come side by side with the person and help people and say, we're going to create this environment. We're not going to a- enable that bad behavior. And we're going to do everything we can to help you create a treatment and recovery path. I'm not naive. It won't work for everybody. But what we do know is it was working. Back in, in the Bush days, and the Clinton days, this is the way most of it was worked. Most of the federal programs that had housing also had what was called wraparound service requirements. Those have gone away. Not only do we don't require them anymore, we don't, we don't even fund them anymore. We basically are now, and, and you hit something earlier, I really want to come back. It, it, the point of you're almost rewarding bad behavior, it, that, that was so insightful uh, the way I describe housing vouchers for people who experience homeless now, I call them Section 8 vouchers with no rules. Mm-hmm. At least Section 8 housing vouchers for the general public has some rules. You, you have uh, certain levels of criminal behavior. You have certain responsibility of uh, who signs the lease can stay in there. You have all sorts of other uh, and I'm not saying every housing authority always follows them perfectly or whatever, but there's at least a, some basic parameters of what your voucher can be used for. In the world of homelessness, not only do all those rules go away, in some ways, in some places, the way they score it, you actually score higher uh, if you have some issues. 
what do you mean how they score it? I don't know what that means. um, How you score to give the next person a voucher. Um, In some places, if you have a higher criminal activity, you score actually higher. Uh, on the the list, and 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 I'm is not this, saying uh, it, let me, I don't mean to interrupt, but this means so when you when when somebody is brought is is seeking these benefits, they they um, are examined, right? Or there's a a, a a a list that they fill out of paperwork or whatever. There's a triage tool. A triage tool, okay. And in the triage tool, um, I guess there's a score of who has the greatest need versus who has a lesser need. Correct. And you're saying that if somebody is a criminal, has a criminal record, or is having these severe dysfunctions, they will score higher on the triage, and therefore they're more likely to get the assistance than somebody who is not as dysfunctional and might actually benefit more uh, from from the benefits that they're seeking? Correct. And I'm not saying every city does that and not every state does that, but that is done. So here's an example. I'm sorry, uh, that's nuts. Exactly. And 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 we're so we're doing if we did it and said because you, of the amount of activity you have in emergency rooms and the amount of activity you have at the court system, we're going to offer you a program but we're going to give you very heavy duty wraparound treatment services and their requirements to participate. I don't think we want to make it where you absolutely have to be an A plus to get through because because treatment and recovery in real life is gray. It, 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 right. You know, in real life, it's gray. You go up and down, up and down. Right. We, we know that. Ask anybody who's part of a 12 step program. Every day is a challenge. But you try to make tomorrow better than today and the day after better than yesterday. And if you the fall back, day. then you get back on your feet and start yeah. again. And, and, and so I, I don't think you want to measure that. But what you have to measure, if, if we're giving governmental money away, I want to make sure somebody's in a program and working a treatment program. I, I, I don't think we should say you got to be 100% successful in 28 days. I, 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 don't, right. I think there's some people who go – too far to the other side. If you've been on the street 20 years and you're supposed to be clean and sober and job ready in 14 days, I also think that's unrealistic. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah, that's not going to happen for yes. anybody. Right. But but we we if you're going to spend all this money on housing, we got to have programs that help you keep the housing. The way I've sort of do it in my speeches is I say whatever housing you're wanting to apply to a particular city situation or offer a person, if you want the housing to stick, you have to treat the underlying issue because a person's already lost housing when they were paying for it. Now, what happens when somebody else pays for it? This is the old adage of if you own a car, you take better care of it than you have a rent a car that's fully insured. You, yeah. you know, it really is a difference. If, if you lost it when you it was your money, are you more or less likely to lose it when it's somebody else's money, especially if the underlying issue hasn't been addressed yet? It sounds to me almost like um, if we said to people with cancer that was treatable, um, well, we're not going to treat you for cancer, but we'll give you some morphine uh, so that you can kill your pain. But the cancer is not going to get any better, and eventually it's going to kill you. 
Exactly. Exactly. Uh, another parallel, uh, uh, not exactly, but pretty similar, would be instead of giving you a Pell Grant to go work it and go to school and learn and write your papers and learn analytical skills and take your test and graduate, let's just give you a Pell Grant and let's go ahead and throw in a, a BA certificate graduation, whether you work it or not. It, it's literally the exact same yeah. thing. Yeah. You're you're saying that education school is to get your your bachelor of arts, bachelor of science, your AA or your MA. Let's just give it to you, give you some money, and if you do it, great. If you don't do it, great. It, it's literally that absurd that, and we're not we're doing nobody any justice. I have to look at the numbers when the federal policy changed in 2013. Street level homelessness has gone up 20.5%. And this is pre COVID numbers. You can't blame this on COVID. Yeah. And overall homelessness has gone up 15.6. And so, with- so that that's another problem we've got as a society. When something doesn't work, we just do more of it instead of saying, wait a second, this isn't working. Let's change direction. Well, California, the insanity of this is, is California. Because uh, in, in 2015, California came along and said, we like what the federal government is moving to, this sort of civil rights, civil liberty, everybody gets a, a place. So they doubled down. They're the only state that says 100% of all their money has to go to housing first. So all the federal money goes to housing first. All the state money since 2015 has gone to housing first. And they've encouraged local cities and counties, if they want any matching money, they have to put their money in. So it's like a two and a half down on what they're. And here's what California's number are since 2015. This is where the absurdity is just beyond a reason. Street level homelessness has gone up 47.1%. These are pre-COVID numbers. grief. Since 2015, and overall homelessness has gone up 33.8%. Again, pre-COVID numbers. So you can't blame this on COVID. It, you know, we got to stop. And we don't yet even know what the post-COVID numbers because no. it takes a while for the statistics to register. Let me make sure I have this straight. So if if uh, I ran Wesley's homeless shelter and I wanted federal or state money if I live, I was in California, I would have to do the homelessness first and could not do uh, the treatment and recovery approach to Correct. get that money? Correct. You can't get any federal money anymore if you want to do that. So if I'm a, if I'm running Wesley's homeless shelter and I want to uh, pursue the approach that you advocate, it all would have to be with private money. Yes. If you want to run a program that has uh, robust treatment and recovery wraparound services and you want to put requirements in, you cannot get federal money for that. You have to do it all, totally on your own. Well, you were the czar for uh, homelessness, and I want to want you to describe your work with the Trump administration. But it sounds like the Obama administration made this shift, and the Trump administration didn't correct it. This whole homelessness or ha- issue or housing first as a solution starts with the second. Uh, it coincides literally with the re-election of President uh, Obama, and then it gets recertified and starts. But President Trump was trying to change it and wanted to change it. The reality is he did not have the House and Senate 
to be able to do that. He wanted to make that change, Dr. So, Carson. So is this by, by uh, legislation or is this by regulation? Legislation. So you got to have the House and the Senate to do this. And Dr. Carson came in and it, before Carson, I got Carson, uh, who was head of HUD, correct? Yeah, head of HUD. And he came in and he started working to try to, to dismantle that and start making changes and start requiring. Uh, and most of the people who work around in my world, we're not against housing. We're not against housing vouchers. We're not against that. What we're against is vouchers without treatment. You have to have the treatment with it together. And when you do them together, you get great results. Uh, not perfect, not 100%. I'm not naive that way, but you get really robust results. So it's if you the, have housing only and somebody decides to run a, uh, as you said, a meth lab out of their free housing, you can't kick them out? I that I am not making the story up. It, I, I, I will not name the, the, the group because I want to protect them a little bit. But I was on, uh, while I was in the White House, the, the czar, and I was in a city up in the Northeast, uh, uh, really close to Philadelphia. And I went to a place and the, the very nice uh, people who are running this facility is a three-story facility. They, they took me through the first floor, then did this really weird deal and got me up to the third floor and went over. And I was like, and I said, I literally said, why don't we hit the second floor? He said, <laughs> second floor is too dangerous. And, and I'm like, too dangerous. Uh, now, now you got my attention. And they said, well, we have two people up there that were running a, a meth lab and uh, are doing some serious drug stuff. And they're currently arrested in jail. And I'm like, well, why haven't we given it away? And they said, legally, they can't give away their, their unit. And I'm like, you mean you're saving their unit and they're on a criminal felony charge? We're not talking a misdemeanor uh, for, you, you know, you had an open beer in a, in, a, in a beach or a park. We're talking about a criminal felony distribution charge. And they had two people on that floor. And I was aghast. I was like, and we've not taken their the room away. We've not given it to somebody. So the room's not even being used because they're over in jail. And we could have been giving it to somebody else. And How long would they have held the, the, the rooms for the people? What if they went to prison for three years? That, that was a good question. And I asked and, and, and everything I kept getting back from the attorneys was at, at this point, they're innocent until guilty. And so right. for now, what they're, if they they're get convicted, then they can be thrown out. I hope. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that wasn't even that, that wasn't even certain. See, that's the, the problem with at least uh, section eight, the housing vouchers has some rules. Yeah. Ours it, are, there are literally virtually no rules. And when you saw some of the temporary programs done under COVID in San Francisco, uh, Sean Hannity, I think, did a show uh, or a feature on what was going on in, uh, in San Francisco. So they had had uh, sort of these, I, I think there were COVID hotels that were supposed to be used for they were supposed to be used for clinical COVID, you know, quarantine and such, but they ended up becoming long-term way. It was sort of a backdoor to get what a lot of people wanted on housing first. And then, and what they have found is how many, you know, different, uh, they were everything from uh, sort of just labs, distribution, 
brothels all being run with government money. Brothels. Brothels. Yeah. Little small brothels. And you're just, you're just scratching your head going, and there's people who really need help, who are ready for help, who will work a treatment and recovery program. And we're subsidizing a brothel operation. We're subsidizing a drug distribution operation. This is where the, the nuttiness to this thing has gotten so wild. And, and, and I want to circle back because you had a really insightful question, sort of the why. And part of it is the sort of civil liberty, civil rights issue. But the other group that sort of, and, and I think there's, they came from two different sides, but are sort of you know, coalescing. And is that's the harm reduction movement. And, and I think some of the harm reduction uh, that you see, at a, if you really look at a good clinical study, there are probably some elements that, that would be okay. Some elements, limited elements and such. But this idea that we don't want you to harm. I went to one of the seminars at one of the national conventions when I was in my, my job. And I walked in, I sat in the back, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Everything was enabling. Everything was going to make it worse. And I want you in a, if we're going to be spending money, I want you, I want our money to go treatment and recovery, not paying for an EMT to help you after you shoot up. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, harm reduction for, for listeners who may not know basically says we should we cannot prohibit particular behaviors that are destructive and harmful the best way is to allow those behaviors in such a way that uh, fewer people who are engaged in them will be hurt does that a pretty accurate assessment very close yeah i think that's a perfect operational one and uh, you we see that uh, across a broad array of issues you know, an issue that I'm involved in is euthanasia, and that's the Dutch approach. The Dutch said, well, you know, some people are going to uh, want to commit suicide when they're seriously ill. So rather than make them do it in a violent way or in a way that might not work, we'll have some harm reduction and open up euthanasia. And of course, numbers of, of people euthanized have gone up, and it's gone from the terminally ill to the chronically ill to people with disabilities to elderly people who are, quote, tired of life to the mentally ill and so forth. And when you take that approach, when you say, listen, there are no lines that cannot be crossed, essentially, except to say somebody has stigma, and I want to get to that in just a second, then you're going to actually, it seems to me, increase that behavior. And and I'm I'm not familiar with the, like, you're an expert in that area. I I don't, you know, I try to always stay in my lane. Yeah, I understand. and and, And what I understand is the harm reduction that literally I went to the national seminar on harm reduction for people experiencing homelessness and everything I understand at a clinical level uh, was enabling. And so not only was it going to make things worse, we're going to make more people worse. It's not just making Robert worse is we're going to add Roberts while making Robert worse. So we're going to expand the number and make it worse for each. And to me, if we want to dignify humanity, if we want to love a person, I mean, that's why I I call uh, one of our levels of facilities. And I'm not talking when I was the the homelessness are when I was uh, actually a consultant helping setting up programs. And we've set a bunch of these up. I call it a come as you are 
uh, strategy. We love you so much. Uh, we don't want you to die on the street, but we're also not going to help you die on the street. We're, yeah. We are going to we are going to help you do everything we can to create an environment that that you have the best possible chance of recovery. And we're going to come by your side and we're going to help you in every single way we can. But we love you too much to let you live in squalor and and in human feces and needles and and pee and garbage and food um it it was interesting i've been working over the last and and disease and so forth exactly and and it was interesting i was working with a couple of uh, uh northern counties up in california and and they had you know up we, further north you go in California you get a mix of some of the traditional San Francisco liberal left side but you also get more of the conservative uh, rural side so that that they don't really have a consensus but I was able to get a consensus around cleaning up a lot of the riverways and estuaries and such and so the 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 people on the right side were saying, yep, we really need to do this. We need to help you treat and such. But people on the left weren't doing it because of the person's health. They were doing it because it was environmentally, it was an environmental issue. They realized that it was so, these encampments were actually creating such an environmental problem that that it was actually changing the bio makeup of the water wow. that was going downstream. So they they joined our side, but they joined from an environmental perspective, not a human perspective. That's interesting. Um, so, it, and you're seeing some weird, you know, one area that we haven't talked about is about half the fires, according to people I've met with with Cal Fire. About half of the fires that have broken out in Northern California uh, were people experiencing homelessness, and they were out in camping in wooded areas and, and going. And I'm not saying the bad ones versus good. I'm just saying right. of all the fires. And it is my understanding that the fire that almost took out the Ronald Reagan Library uh, was a group of people who were experiencing homelessness who got that one started. And so... Mm. Where this is affecting our society in so many different ways that I think we're we're on the edge of losing this. We're on the yeah, edge I, of this I, being I, I a think disaster. it's a crisis. I, I don't think there's any denying that it's a crisis. And when you see this, you know, I I lived in San, in and around San Francisco for nearly 24 years, and I watched over time as the the quality of life in that city declined to the place now where what was once a world class city is literally a pigsty that people are afraid to go to now. They're going to lose their tourism. They're going to lose their business sector. And if the uh, if the if the high if the high tech community, the Silicon Valley community, ever decides to s- say, "Okay, we've had enough," then you could have an implosion of California. In San Francisco, I think is a lot of people point to Los Angeles. I actually think the situation in San Francisco is worse than anywhere else in the world right now. And it is, I stayed there two or three times during COVID and I literally was walking out and the doorman at the hotel stopped me. They had a security person because a lot of the hotels were so understaffed. They put a security person there in San Francisco and said, you're going to get yourself killed if you walk that way. And I said, well, that's where my meetings are. And he says, 
you you will likely get robbed, hurt, and I'm warning you, what are you doing? And I said, well, that's actually what I do, and I'm going there. And and they've lost so many medical conventions in particular. They've lost yes. some of the biggest medical conventions, and they're losing conventions just over and over and over. It started out small, and now it's really picked up. And my understanding is they're starting to lose conventions in other business areas, and they moved one of the big high-tech conventions. So San Francisco was a world-class city of tourism and conventions. People loved going to the Masoni, you know, and go to the go to a show there and then get to do all the cool stuff. You can't do that anymore. It's unsafe yeah. to take your family there. It's unsafe to walk on the streets there. And, and, toward, and toward the end of our time there, we left uh, um, in early 2017, but you wouldn't take uh, the Metro BART uh, anymore because you when you got off the escalator, you were having to step over people. It is, it is, it, you, people would not realize that's in America. If you just showed pictures, you would assume it's some other place in the world and not realizing it's right here in the United States. And the best I can tell are the politicians are saying it's okay. That, the, the best, I mean, I, I, that's the, everybody I met with, I, I, I didn't meet with every single person while I was in the administration, but, but I met with a lot of the key players. Uh, and I was just stunned that people thought, hey, that's okay. And, yeah. and that's a, or we want, it's your right to stay there. And yeah. uh, I, I personally think we need to, the, the Boise, uh, Martin versus Boise is the current controlling case now in, in sort of legal case law about homelessness. And I, I think that really needs to be revisited very quickly here because it's allowing places to Tell just us about deteriorate. That case. Tell us about that case. What, what basically, uh, Mart, it's the, the case is called Martin versus Boise, and it's a case that went through the San Francisco, ironically, uh, federal circuit court. And so it was, uh, it came out of the district court of Boise. It went to San Francisco. It was presented to the Supreme Court, I think, in December of 2019. Ted Olson was the lead counsel, and he was trying to get it, uh, the Supreme Court, to actually hear the case. They chose not to hear the case at that time, and everybody just assumed they were going to see. What does the case say? And the case basically said a government can't move people out of a squalor shelter, no matter how awful it is, no matter how many people are dying, unless you do a whole bunch of things. And if you do the whole bunch of things, then you can do it. And some of the things in the case are actually good, but the fact that you know people are dying in a squalor condition and a city can't do anything until they build a new place, until they put do these things, just seems crazy. Do, if, does if the some, decision say in law that you have to do the housing only approach? It it comes sort of close to that, and it certainly is in that philosophical genre. It's a little more nuanced than that, but it it, it says what there are two things that says in if you move somebody off the street and I'm going to way oversimplify it. So for anybody listening, don't, this is not your legal prescribed, you know, all that morning, but this is, it it says you have to have at least one bed for the next head or you can't start. So if there are four if you got 20 people in a place you're trying to clean up and you only have four beds, you can't do that. You can't go in there. You have to have 21 beds. So you have to have one more bed, than what you're trying to do. 
and the place has to be a much better and safer location. That, I think, is actually reasonable. You don't want to take somebody from one squalor, move them over. That's like moving the cheese. So that part of the case, I, I think there's a lot of benefit to. But the idea that you can't start making changes until you have enough quantity to help everybody seems ridiculous to me because we could help a hundred people and you're saying no you can't help anybody because you don't have enough beds for everybody. So you're saying that triage that we described earlier in this discussion the court is saying you can't do that. You can't do that. You got to have enough for everybody. Well uh, (laughs) that brings me to the cost of this. I read a piece you wrote an article and I I was stunned at this figure. You said that one homeless, a single unit to house one homeless person in Los Angeles costs eight hundred and thirty-seven thousand dollars. That's the cost of a large house, and you're talking about a simple little um, uh, home for a homeless person. That's unaffordable, and why is it so expensive? And, and that's a basically a studio. It's a little bigger than a studio unit. You know, that amount of money in my neighborhood buys you a mansion with five acres. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, where I live. Even and where so, I live near D.C., you still get a pretty good house for $837,000. Ex- exactly. This is just crazy. And Judge Carter, who, who by the way, is a, a Democrat. Not, not a, He's not a Trump appointee. He's not a conservative. Judge Carter in Los Angeles, I think, is a must-read. He wrote uh, a 150-page opinion a couple years ago, and he pointed out two things. One is more people have died on the streets in Los Angeles than have been housed in the streets of Los Angeles after having two billion dollars of bond issues. Now, not all that bond issue has been collected, about 65%. So call it about 1.2, 1.3 billion. So after collecting $1.3 billion to build housing, and there are two bond issues, uh, what's called Triple H and H, more people died on the street than the units they built. And this is the Judge Carter opinion. The second is because of the weird requirements and rules they make on the housing and how they build it, the market rate is cheaper than the governmental built housing for less. <laughs> for less. And so you're like, this is your housing for let's 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 suspend reality for a second and say housing first with no treatment, no recovery is the logical thing, you know, so we're going to have no wraparound services, no thing. If you said that will work and that's the perfect magic elixir and such. Now we have a question, can you afford it? Yeah. And so if a studio unit, a glorified studio unit is almost $900,000 now, can you afford that if you have a quarter million people on the street? 1.2 million people by HUD definition, 2.8 million if you count HUD and Ed together. Can you actually afford that? And this is nuts. It not, not only does it clinically doesn't work, the program they're defining is not working. And Los Angeles has a literally two bond issues bringing in $2 billion and they can't, they can't get it. And th- that's why Judge Carter's decision is a much read. It's it's a fabulous read, real quick read, and you'll see the just absurdity of this. 
Let me get to some of the criticisms I read of you just for a minute. Uh, I read one uh, person, a, a woman named Diane Yentel, who is CEO of the National Low Income Housing Coalition. She said that your guiding principles are, quote, paternalistic, patronizing, filled with poverty, blaming, and shaming. What do you think of that? And it strikes me that that um, this constant resistance to any stigma, stigma helps people live well. When we, we, when we care about what our neighbors think, we often will live a better life. And I'm, I'm certainly not wanting to, you know, stigmatize people and drive them away, you know, like a, 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 a scapegoat or anything. But, but this idea that, um, that we should never quote judge close quote, even the most dysfunctional behavior as we've discussed, I think is, is, is destructive. So, so are you paternalistic, patronizing, and filled with poverty, poverty, blaming, and shaming? I, I, I don't even know what poverty, blaming, and shaming is. Uh, when I saw that quote from her, I was like, I don't even know what she's talking about. My view is very simple. We love people on the street so much. I respect them, dignifying so much. We want to do everything you can to get out of homelessness forever. And if 80% of the people have a mental health or behavioral health uh, or substance use issue, wouldn't we want to help that person? If yeah. they were in your family, wouldn't it, even if they're an adult family member, wouldn't you want to help uh, people? You know, I, I lived in California when Ronald Reagan was governor, and Ronald Reagan uh, worked hard to close mental health hospitals. And part of the reason he did that was because the ACLU, which is on the other side of the political spectrum from Ronald Reagan, was suing and saying that when you put people in mental health hospitals or mental hospitals, you are depriving them of freedom. And so the idea was to re, to close the, a lot of the mental hospitals, not everybody, somebody was violent and so forth, they, they, they permitted to continue to be hospitalized. And then the idea was going to be, as I recall it, I was young then, that th- the loss of services in the mental hospitals perhaps these people didn't belong there would be then created with local mental health support. And that never occurred. Is my memory about that? Correct. Very, very close. Uh, Two things were happening simultaneously. Uh, People on the conservative side were saying, is this the right role of government? Are we spending too much money on it? And, it, the if you can't use it for what's intended for, why are we going to keep it open? Hence, exactly what you were describing with the ACLU. Now, on the far left, they were watching One of Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and thought it was a documentary and <laughs> moved in the deinstitutionalization movement. And uh, I think both extremes have not helped this issue. Uh, here's a really interesting statistic. In 1950, we, and these are real ballpark numbers. I'm not going right. to get in because the, the, some of the definitions have changed. But basically had about a half a million federally funded treatment beds in 1950 with the United States about 40% less the size now. Right now, we have about 3% of those federally funded beds in the same programs. We, we have dramatically reduced the beds. And, 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 and we don't have time to go into it. It's a thing called the IMD exclusion. 
uh, and there's a lot of nuance to that uh, that goes on. But the bottom line is the federal government has gotten out of this, partly because the left wanted us to get to deinstitutionalize and not put people in hospitals. And then the right didn't want to spend money. And we ended up in this situation that we emasculated our, our mental health behavioral health system in the United States. It's gone. Uh, we, yes. we don't have one. And uh, this is bumping up into homelessness. It's bumping up into not people, you know, uh, in general public. It's bumping into it. Uh, you're starting to see this in some of the mass shootings issues of, of people. This is happening in a lot of places now, and it's rippling through a lot of areas. And if we don't have a serious issue, a serious national conversation about the need to for public health and public, you know, sort of whether it's mental health, behavioral health, and in the requirements around that, and I mean requirements, mean fed, you know policy requirements. We need to have a better understanding about 24 seven uh, holds, sometimes called a 24 hour hold, the 72 hour hold. We need to better understand that. We need to have funding. We need to be, you know, why is it the federal government pays for mental health for people under 17 and over 65 or 65 and over and, and, and 17 and under, but basically we don't pay for any health between somebody around 21, 22 up to 65. It, we exclude them. That's part of the IMD exclusion, and so IMD stands for what? Uh, it's the it's a it's the Institute of Mental Health, and it's the group that decides what the rules are for uh, Medicaid and Medicare. I see. And so it, it's a bureaucratic group, and that's the right. name it's been given. And it's a very nuanced deal. It basically says if you're at a hospital. Of 16 or more, they will not give you any funding, but if you're 15 or less, we'll give you funding. Well, there's no mental health or behavioral health hospital that can operate under 15. The, the expenses to start, you need to have a big enough facility in order to be able to have economies of scale to run the facility. So it basically means nobody gets help in that middle age group. All right. Now, as the czar, did you go overseas and see how other countries dealt with these issues? Not while I was there. Part of that was because when COVID happened, our travel right. restrictions, I, I was planning on going to a couple places and that did not happen. Have uh, you done it? Pan have out. you but checked out other countries? I have on my own prior to going in. And, I, and I've what been are they doing better countries. than us and why, are they, why aren't we doing what they're doing if they've got a better record? I, I think because we have chosen uh, a hands-off approach that it, you have a civil right, civil liberty to hang out under that park bench or in that riverbed or outside the library or underneath the highway or out in the park or in the forest. And we don't, we have have such a standoff of engagement in other countries. They engage, they don't allow that to happen. Other countries go in and, and some countries do it very well. Some countries don't do it so well, but you have to engage people and say, we're not going to let you hang out in a riverbed. I mean, we have to, as a society, say that doesn't make sense. Hanging out downtown, like what's going on in San Francisco, saying that doesn't make sense and we're not going to allow it to happen. Sounds to me, and we're running out of time here, so I, I want to begin to wrap this up, but it sounds to me like perhaps the best approach would be Oh, uh, grants that would allow different uh, private sector 
homeless activists to take different approaches and And rather than a one size fits all. You're absolutely right. And they're about, you know, you have mental health, behavioral health, you have post-traumatic stress, you have domestic violence, you have military sexual trauma. We got a whole plethora of sort of causalities and everybody's uh, treatment and recovery story is unique. So I think the more customized you can make trauma-informed care for the individual, the better off you'll be for everybody. And to be honest, what San Francisco needs is different than what a suburb in Washington, D.C. needs, right. which is different than well, what Atlanta needs. That's why I was needs. thinking perhaps like a block grant or a, a here's the money. You, you then apply the rules that you think are appropriate. Obviously, whenever you get the government, it just becomes regulatorily uh, moribund uh, as opposed to a private, you know, purely private uh, sector um, philanthropy uh, that can that can adjust and can move very quickly. I don't know, but you can't get the money purely private. And then if you get the money from the government, they put on the handcuffs. Well, and I think we shouldn't be measuring outputs like how many trinkets we give away or cots we give away or, mm-hmm. or vouchers we give away. We should be measuring how many people does your pro private say group a has a 50% reduction in a two years of people exiting homeless forever. And the other one doesn't even measure how many people exit homelessness. All they measure is how many vouchers they give out. If we keep measuring vouchers, we're just going to give more and more vouchers away. I want to measure how many people graduate out of homeless, how many people exit homelessness forever, how many people become self-sufficient. And if we start measuring that and reward the money toward that and allow people to customize programs based on local needs, we'll do much, much better. And we do that pretty well in block grants. Block grants aren't perfect, but CDBG on an average, is one of the better programs that the federal government's run because it allows for local customization. And so if we can allow to customize it and then allow the providers to be able to provide the robust programming and have some requirements built into the program, just like you do for Pell Grants, unemployment insurance, TANF. This is not an extreme issue. I've been called an extremist, and I'm like, Let's have some basic program requirements like we do Pell Grants. Think of a Pell Grant, what you require. You have to fill out some forms. You have to commit to you're going to do it in either three years, four years, five years. You have to attend class at an 88% level. You have to keep a 2.0 program. Why can't we find similar measurements to a Pell Grant and apply it to people experiencing homelessness? We'd be infinitely better off. So this is not an extremist view. It's a common sense view. If, if someone really wants to get off the street, can they today? Yes. Not with any of the federal programmings, but you got, you got groups like the city gate network out there. The Salvation Army has some fabulous programs. You have some independent programs like uh, star of hope, Haven for hope uh, programs, cast in Phoenix. You have programs in this country that are fabulous and what's fascinating about them, you know what they have most in common? They don't take federal money. Well, that's really something. Well, we're out of time. There's much more to say here. 
Uh, if people want to know more, uh, what are the best sources of accurate information as far as you're concerned? We're going to put some notes in, in program notes, but uh, we need more than that. What would you say? I think one of the best things you could do is read the strategic plan that we did. And I know you said you were going to post that and, yep. and that's the expanding the toolbox. That's probably the best single document that covers the wide array of, of issues uh, out there. Because um, candidly, the strategic plan that is that has been developed under the Obama administration was just housing first, housing first, housing first more vouchers, more money, less rules, less restrictions. And that's clearly not worked. And, and, and that's as a the reminder, current status quo. That's the status quo. Yeah, that's the status quo. And as a reminder, the Housing First people promised on January of 2013 that homelessness would end in 10 years if they moved to this program. Well, they've doubled their amount of money. They've tripled the amount of units. And we're coming up on the 10th anniversary here in less than a year and it doesn't. Uh, looking out my window, it doesn't look like homelessness has ended. No, it's 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 gotten much worse. Well, what next for Bob Marbot? I, I just continue to uh, do as many of these. Like, you, and thank you for having me on today. Uh, I, I try to talk to as many groups as I can, uh, and and you just have to push back because right now. They're really it, the the other side is sort of making this a, like a almost like a little R religious issue. And mm -hmm. They're trying to make it the sort of civil rights, civil liberty type of issue. And to me, this is purely a medical, clinical, therapeutic issue for about eighty percent of the people experiencing homelessness. So why aren't we treating it that way? So I try I, to get I, that word out every day. I think that's excellent. And I think there's one more thing. We have to elevate this in terms of politics to something that we expect our elected representatives to take care of and to work on. And, and, and I'm not seeing that. I don't see a lot of discussion of this. I see discussion of, oh my gosh, look at these tents and we must do something about it. But I don't see any kind of real discussion. And perhaps it's the nature of our discourse these days that get into the kind of details you described in this interview. And the the I think part of that is starting to happen. Uh, there's been some really good polling about what are the top issues in the top 33 cities in America, and homelessness for the first time ever is either number one or number two in every single large city in the United States. So once the polling starts starts popping so consistently. I think your mayoral candidates and your governor candidates are going to start to have to respond to it. And they can't just keep saying, well, we're going to do more of what we've been doing the last 10 years because it, it's, it's doubled overall. It's doubling in many cities. The homelessness problem is not reducing it. So at some point yeah. you have to say, when do you stop? Tr when do you stop an experiment that's not working? Yeah. It's it, the old, uh, definition of psychosis you know you keep doing the same thing over again when it doesn't work yeah <laughs> and expect a different outcome yeah exactly that's the that's the definition well bob thank you very much welcome to the discovery institute and uh, we'll talk to you again thank you for having me on really appreciate it thanks for listening to humanize from discovery institute's center on human exceptionalism where human rights meet human responsibilities Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org slash human.
We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.